You know, as a, as a parent, I'm discovering that some of the things I say, my kids don't understand. And some of you are parents like, well, yeah, but um, things like, you sound like a broken record. They don't know about that. They're like, Dad, what's a record? Is that something you press for the DVR or record? No, 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 no. Um, or you just tell them to go dial a phone number. Remember those? Yeah. Um, one of my favorite ones is um, roll down the window. What do you... <laughs> for, for, for my kids, they've never seen a, a crank window before. So the idea of, roll, what do you mean roll down the window? You press down. You press up. It's, it's not that hard. Um, or things like, what's trending? Or I'm going to tweet that. Oh, wait, no, that's what people say now that I don't understand. Words change, right? And, and meanings of words change. Our understanding of phrases change. And for this week and next week, we want to talk a little bit about changing some words. And for us as Village Bible Church, we have a constitution, which are our bylaws that um, are voted on by the membership and control really how we are a church, how we want to be God's church. And as a church, we recognize that the Bible, God's Word, is our final authority. And so out of the Bible, we've taken principles and converted those or, or taken the principles that have become our constitution for how we want to be a church. And God's Word, the final authority, doesn't change. But from time to time, we revisit our Constitution and say, Are there, is there wording here that is unclear? Because that's man's words. That's our words. Is there wording here that is no longer reflecting exactly what the Bible has to say? And so it's been about seven years since we've gone through that process. And the Elder Board has been working diligently to go through that process again. And, and even having a retreat for a weekend where it wasn't just out on the beach lounging, but actually going through the Constitution item by item and saying, does this say what we believe God's Word says for the church? Is this understood in the same way that it was intended? And so this week, to all the members of Village Bible Church, we'll be sending out a proposed Constitution of a number of changes that we'd like to make. Now you might say, well, why are we talking about this on a Sunday morning? And... Uh, specifically because a couple of the changes are very key to who we are as a church and apply to the whole church. When we talk about a, a change to our vision statement, our direction as a church, that's something we want to talk about as a whole church family. But then there is a section that we're adding to the Constitution that's a, a doctrinal statement that we, we want to teach through the biblical basis for anything that we add doctrinally. So that way, as a congregation, we can say, this is what we believe, this is why we believe it. And so we don't have phrases like, roll down the window, that maybe we don't understand, but hey, it's been in there forever, let's keep it. But we want to look at language and make sure that we are accurately reflecting God's Word in our church. In, in this case, one of the sections that we'll talk about that we're adding to the Constitution, the doctrinal statement has to do with heaven and hell, and we'll, we'll cover that in a moment, but our doctrinal statement doesn't address heaven and hell directly, but yet in the church, especially in the last ten years, the doctrine of hell and even of heaven at times has come under attack. And it has come under attack from, interestingly enough, within evangelical circles. 
And so this is something that we want to make a firm and clear stand as a church. This is what we believe. So that way there's no confusion there. And, and we can come from a common ground to how we, we do evangelism. How we view salvation. How we view the, the results of whether or not we repent and follow Christ. And so this morning we'll start a, a little two-week mini-series. And we'll start with a, a change to our vision statement and the eternal state of heaven. And the next week we'll talk about hell and uh, look at all the passages or a number of passages that surround those doctrines so that way we can feel like we've really studied what God's Word has to say rather than, oh, this is what the elders say should be in our visions or our constitution. So that's where we're going the next couple weeks. And I'm excited. I'm excited that we address these issues, doctrinal issues. I'm excited that we as a church can talk good doctrine and that we should talk doctrine, and that we can study God's Word. And from a vision statement perspective, that we can address where does God have us as a church? What does God want us to be doing as Village Bible Church? I'd like to start with our vision statement. A vision statement serves to give us direction. It gives us boundaries within which we are to pursue God's leading as a church. Now, a couple of definitions here, and if you've been through the Welcome to Village class recently, you've heard some of this. Our mission statement is an overreaching mission statement that applies to all churches. What does God want His church to do? A vision statement is more specific to this locality or this this, um, individual church. What does God want Village Bible Church to do? And so in our vision statement, our current vision statement is building Christ-focused families that disciple their community for Him. And a significant amount of work went into this statement and, and a significant amount of understanding of what each of those words meant. And as we looked at that, our original intent of this statement was that God's church is built, and, and the overriding theme of this statement was God's church, that this was the vision statement for this locality. And so our original intent was God's church is built as we build strong godly homes, of any biblical form, and as we act as a family with each other. And so when we talked about Christ-focused families, we assumed that there was a church family there and that we were building a church family. And then as we build Christ-focused families, or homes sometimes I use the word, that was assumed that that's any biblical form of a home. That, that could be um, someone that has lost a spouse. That could be Um, A single that is on their own working and has their home serving God. That could be a a family with children. It could be a couple that hasn't had children. But any biblical form. And so we would not recognize maybe a couple living together. That would be a, a sin issue. That would not be a biblical form of a family. And what we found is, and, and out of that, we often teach and word it as a commitment, we are committed to building and being a healthy family. However, what's been interesting, culture has changed. And as culture has changed over the last 15 years, the understanding of what this statement has, has meant has changed. And I hear that in our Welcome to Village classes. I hear that in feedback from time to time. And so it's interesting that, that people read this now and view it as not that we're a church family, but that we're a series of individual families that are doing their own thing and, and that this might say, okay, well, I don't have children, so I can't be part of village. And one of the statements that I, that I have often heard is, well, I don't have 
you know, a, a wife and 2.3 kids. And so I don't know that village is a place for me. And that saddens me. That breaks my heart because that was not the original intent of the elder board. And so a couple reasons for this, I think. Um, culturally, we're seeing a rise across the nation in the age that people get married at. And so people are going much longer without getting married. Couples that are married are going much longer without kids or choosing not to have kids. We have more singles in the workforce and, and in, in ministry in a church than we've ever had in America before. And so we, we want to look at those things and say, does this statement mean what we want it to mean? Along with that, I actually think even though culture has, has made a determined effort to redefine family in ways that we would not define it, what's interesting is people's perception of family has become firmly entrenched, in my opinion, that it is a husband, wife, and children. And even things like insurance forms, if you've been filling out, which I know many have, are dealing with insurance policies and canceled policies, you have a husband, wife, and then what's the third option? Family. Family. And so our culture, even though the attempt has been made to redefine it, I would argue that we, we actually have deepened the, this idea that children are required for family. And so as people look at this, it means something very different from what we intended it to mean 15 years ago. And so we'd, what we'd like to do is we'd like to update it a little bit and not change the focus and not change the meaning. We don't want to come this morning and say, you know what, now we think God wants us to do such and such. But to, to modify the wording slightly to make sure that we're communicating what we intend to communicate, that we want to be a church family with each other and we want to build strong homes and strong families in any form that is biblical as God has, has defined in Scripture. And so our proposed wording is building a Christ-focused church family that disciples our community for Him. Building a Christ-focused church family that disciples our community for Him. And our goal in this is still to remind us that we're a family-oriented church. That's part of our mission statement, part of who we are, part of our DNA. But to understand that we explicitly want to say we are a church family. First and foremost, we are a church family that fills in those gaps those, those, when, when a spouse has been lost and passed on to be with the Lord, that the church family fills in those gaps. But along with this, still keeping a family-oriented idea that we are building strong families. Church family is made up of godly homes. And to every person here that is walking with God that knows God as your personal Savior, you are part of church family. You are part of this church family. The other change we made is the wording toward the end. Instead of disciple their community for Him, it's disciples our community for Him. And, and we talked about that and really wanting to, to stress the idea that there's personal responsibility, both to our community here as a church, to your communities where you live, but it's not their task, it's our task. And so that corresponds with being a church family and saying, what does God want us to do together? I'd like to just break this down into a couple parts on your notes. 
like I said, we're committed to building and being a healthy family. And, and the two key words there are building and being. How do we build homes? How do we build nuclear families? How, how do we be a church family? How are we to act as a church family? So breaking that out in the first item being building, in your notes there, building a healthy church family means developing healthy Christ-centered homes. Building a church, a healthy church family means developing healthy Christ-centered homes. And so this is the part where we are interested in what goes on in the home. We are interested in equipping husbands to be better husbands, fathers to be better fathers, wives to be better wives, mothers to be better mothers, single people to be better servants of God and, and to have a, a home that glorifies God. Widows and widowers to be able to be part of the church family and contributing to those that are younger. All of those things are part of building healthy homes. We'll look at a number of verses today, so if you have your Bibles, get ready to turn to a lot of places, or if you have your readers, get ready to have your fingers have a workout. But turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, and it's a passage that we studied a couple of months ago. I just want to point out a couple of the verses out of the qualifications for elder, the qualifications for deacon. 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting at verse 2. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. Part of leadership, according to, to Paul and to God's Word, is having a healthy home, being a one-woman man, treating your wife with appropriate love and with appropriate devotion. Jumping down to verse 4, He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? And we see that leadership, again, it starts at home. And so families and healthy families are part of the DNA of a healthy church. A leader shows that at home and then is able to lead in that same way in a church. If we have a church full of unhealthy families and, and men and women that, that can't function at home in a godly way, then we can't have leaders in a church. We can't function as a healthy church. And so to say we're a, a family-oriented church or a Christ that we're building Christ-focused families by necessity implies that we're building homes as well. Turn over to the qualifications for deacon. Verse 12, let deacons each be the husband of one wife or one woman, uh, one woman man, managing their children and their house, own households well. Again, very similar to elders, but it's reaffirming and by repetition showing that leadership is, starts in the home. So we want to build healthy homes. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, and I just want to hit a couple of excerpts of verses there out of this section. I've put a number of, of passages in your notes. I encourage you to go back during the week and read those, any that we don't cover, because there's no way we'll cover all of those in your notes this morning. But Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And we see Paul's instruction to the church of wives how to be good wives. Verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. A sobering responsibility, men. And we see God instructing His church how to be husbands. The men, 
Ephesians 6.1 Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. We see instructions in a church setting for children how to behave in the home. Verse 4. 6.4 Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We see instructions to the church dads how to be a good dad. We see the same thing in Colossians 3, 19-21 that you can read. We see the same thing in Titus 2 as there's instructions, especially from the older to the younger and older women to the younger women of how to be responsible in their homes. So the Bible is not silent on issues of the home. And as a church, if we're to build a Christ-focused church family, we're to address issues in the home. We're to address the things that God's Word brings up. And so we're committed to building healthy homes. Building a healthy church family means developing healthy, Christ-centered homes. This change does not lose that focus. I want to make that, that very clear. That we are still focused on building homes to be healthy and to be godly and to be serving Him. Second part, though, be there. Or number two, as a church body... We are to be a family. So if we're building and being a healthy family, this is the being part of it. As a church body, we're to be a family. And one of the, the several metaphors that are used in the New Testament for the church, one of them is that of a family or a household. And we, we've talked about this several times. But as a household of faith, as we come in this morning, you look around and there are 200 brothers and sisters in Christ that you have here. 200 siblings. You want a large family? We got a large family and it's great. We celebrate together. We minister together. We live life together. But as a church, we're to see this as God's family and act accordingly. We're to be a family. Turn over to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. And we start with the words of Christ as we think about this concept. As Christ began to redefine family in a culture where family was everything and, and the extended family was your life, he was very countercultural as he expanded that to include others. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 49. And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. This is, this is so significant. If you remember the story, Jesus is teaching and His mother and brothers are standing outside and they're trying to sort of rein Him in and bring Him back into the fold. And He says, this is my brother. This is my sister, my mother. And so Jesus Himself begins to help us understand that He's redefining family to include the family of God. And at Village, we want to honor that and make that one of our commitments that we value the family of God. Galatians 6.10 talks a little bit about, again, us as a family or a household. Galatians 6.10, flip over there with me. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone... And then it says, and especially, and so he's, he's giving a, a sense of priorities. We're to do good to everybody, but and especially to those who are of the household of faith. 
So he says, pay attention to your church family. Those are special people. Those are people that are to be a priority in our lives. We saw this in 1 Timothy 5, and you don't need to turn there. You can, you can turn there this week. But in verses 1 and 2 of 1 Timothy 5, as we studied that, we, we, we entitled that sermon something my daughter would say, We a Family. And it read, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers. Older women as mothers. Younger women as sisters in all purity. And God is stressing that as a church, we're to see each other as a family. Fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters. And he goes on in that section to talk about the widows of the church. And to say, church, you have a responsibility, a familial responsibility to the widows in your church. Because they are family. So as a church body, we are family. And we are to be a family. A couple of points that that brings up, and there's more we could cover here, but three points for this morning. Church family seeks to adopt as many possible into the family. Church family seeks to adopt as many possible into the family. In John 1.12 we read, But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave them the right to become children of God. And he's saying if you follow Christ and repent and believe on Him, you now become a child of God. You're adopted into the family. Turn to Romans 8, 15 and 16. A great passage for us to understand our place in God's family and then by implication our responsibilities to each other. Romans 8, 15 and 16. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And adoption as sons, it's a general term, sons and daughters, as His children. Abba, Father is a wonderful phrase of endearment, of closeness with the Father, of family. Even today in in Israel, children will often call their daddies Abba. And it's this, this closeness. I, I love it when my, my kids come to me, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. That's the Spirit that we have received. Verse 16 goes on, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And so we want our vision statement to reflect that we are a family And as we look at these, we want to recognize that as a family, recognizing that God has adopted us into His family, He sought us when we were lost, He pursued us to adopt us into His family, we then should match the Father, we should follow His example, and adopt as many people possible into our own church family. Psalm 68, 5 and 6 says, Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in His holy habitation. Think about that. Father of the fatherless. He cares about those that have lost parents. He cares about those that that need fathers. And protector of the widows is God in His holy habitation. He cares about those that have lost loved ones. 
And the idea here is people without family, God has a heart for. And the next verse goes on to say, God settles the solitary in a home. God settles the solitary in a home, reflecting His desire to bring them into a family setting. For the church, we are that family setting. So church family seeks to adopt as many people possible into the family. I challenge you with this to make sure that that is our attitude at Village. To make sure we are looking around to adopt as many people possible. To bring in as many people possible. That means if, if you're in a group setting and you see someone by themselves, notice it and then find a way to include them. To bring them into the family circle. As we go to the gym, if we see someone out there standing by themselves, go talk to them. Adopt them into the family. Adopting someone into the family, and, and this, is, this is near and dear my heart, means bringing them in as a full member of the family. Bringing, helping them know that they are as much family as you and I. When we brought Jeffrey and Alicia into our home, they are not second-class children. It's not Mark and then Jeffrey and Alicia. In fact, if we did that, what would every one of you think of us? Cruel? Horrid? Awful? When you bring children in and adopt them, they are full children, and as Jesus said, joint heirs with Christ... And so we have that responsibility as a church to as people come and as people join our church family to make sure we're adopting them in. And, and this takes recognizing. It takes noticing people. It takes some effort. But it's worth it. It has taken a great deal of effort to help Jeffrey and Alicia see themselves as our son and our daughter. But we're committed to it. I challenge us to have that same commitment as a church family. To have the heart of God who's the father to the fatherless, the protector of widows, who places them in homes. Let's be that home. Second bullet point under being a church family, church families have devoted and authentic relationships. Church families have devoted and authentic relationships. There is so much that we can cover here. So many verses. We could go through all the love one another's. But I just want to hit two verses this morning. Romans 12.10. Turn with me to Romans 12.10. Just a couple pages over. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. And you can underline a few words there. Brotherly affection. Love one another with brotherly affection. A familial affection. Outdo is a word that I have in bold. Outdo one another in showing honor. My boys love to outdo each other. It's, it's just boys, I think. And so it's like, well, I can do this. Well, I can do this. Well, I can do this. What a great picture that, that God is painting for us of how we're to be the body. That we outdo each other in showing honor or showing preference to one another. Showing value. The word for honor is that of valuing someone and esteeming them. Well, I can, I can value people in this congregation better than you can. 
you know, we don't want to get into that too much, but the, the idea of, of outdoing that I am committed to that as a priority, and a church priority. Outdo one another in showing honor. 1 Thessalonians 3.12, I'll read this one. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. And we see throughout Paul's writing to his churches, there's often these statements of care and love. And he's often using words like brothers and sisters. So his church family were to have devoted and authentic relationships. And again, that takes effort. It takes time. It takes getting involved in people's lives, which is messy at times, but so worth it and so enjoyable. Third bullet point there, church families provide family care to each other. Church families provide family care to each other. In a, in a nuclear family in your homes, you know that if someone gets sick, and I know many over the last month in our church have gotten sick, people in the home care for them. When my kids get sick, they run, well, they run to mommy a little bit more than I do, or than, than, than they run to me, rather. Um, I run to mommy. <laughs> but for some reason, they think they're going to get better care from mommy than daddy. That's okay. Mommy does a great job of caring for them and knowing what medicine they need. In a church family, we're to care for one another, to provide that family care. It's not just up to the staff. Now, we're to provide family care as well, but it's not just up to us and everyone else can just receive, receive, receive. A family everybody gives. Galatians 6.2. Turn with me. A simple verse. But a key verse in understanding this. Galatians 6.2. Bear one, another, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And the command there is that we're to lift each other up. We're to help them carry their burdens. It's the idea of caring for each other. Going through things together to where people aren't alone. Another familiar passage, Hebrews 10, 23, and 25. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And the author of Hebrews there is challenging the church to not neglect meeting together, to not neglect coming into the assembly, because through that we encourage each other, we stir one another up or provoke each other to love and to good deeds. And that mutual encouragement is part of what should designate a family. Church families provide family care to each other. So that's our proposed change to the vision statement. And again, that will come out in the Constitution to members, and then members will vote on that. And at the beginning of April, we'll have a called business meeting. But the idea is to help us remember we are a church family. And the church family is built strong as the individual homes are built into to godly homes and built strong. So we'll put that aside. And it's sort of interesting this morning. We have, we have the vision statement, then we move on to doctrine. And I have no really fancy transition between the two. 
So we're just going to move on to doctrine and our doctrinal um, statement and talking about the eternal state, uh, man's eternal state and the eternal state of the saved. We'll start with today. We won't quite finish that today and the next week we'll finish that and go to the eternal state of those that are not saved, that do not believe in Jesus Christ. But by man's eternal state, what you see in your, your notes, what we're referring to is what happens at the end of time or what, what happens there as well as after we die. We had to deal with this last night as, as we found out that um, our kids in the school they're at, two of the students, twin students, um, Friday night lost their mom. And so we wanted to tell our kids um, before they get to school on Monday and so we sat around the table last night and we talked about this very thing in, in, in terms that a six, seven, and nine-year-old would understand, and we fielded questions. But the question is, what happens when we die? What happens beyond this, this place, this, this earthly body, and what we see here? And as we get into that, we're going to divide it into two parts. What happens to the saved, those that believe in Christ, and what happens to the unsaved, those that have rejected Christ? But a couple of terms that we need to define just right at the beginning so you know what we're talking about and you don't look at me like, I have no idea what you're saying. One is the the two terms are intermediate state and eternal state. And when we talk about man's intermediate state, we're talking about that, that condition that occurs between death and when we're resurrected. In your notes, um, I give Erickson's definition, the condition of humans between their death and resurrection. And we'll talk about that as we, we explore the verses and explore the chart. And then by eternal state, we're talking about that state in which we will exist for all eternity. So it's after the, the intermediate state is when we die through the resurrection. The eternal state is everything beyond that. In this statement, we actually address both leading up to the eternal state and then what our eternal state is. And this is, this is so important to understand, because as you talk with people, there, there is this definite idea that this is all there is. There is no heaven or there is no hell. Or I talk with people all the time that are okay with heaven, but really don't want to believe in, in the existence of a real hell. And so how do we address that? Because those beliefs, that doctrine, affects so much of how we interact with especially the unsaved. As I've been studying this week and and thinking through heaven and hell, what's been really interesting is I walk around and I look at people differently after just immersing myself in the study the last few weeks of this. Because now instead of, oh, that person cut me off, I'm thinking, oh, that person is either going to heaven or hell for all eternity. Man, that changes everything. That changes how we talk to people, how we look at people. For Paul, I believe his belief in the eternal state is what drove him to evangelism and drove him to share the gospel. What drove him to make his focus God's purpose of saving souls. And so, in our, in our doctrinal statement, you see in your notes there part of it. Next week, you will see the rest of it. We, have a, we start with a summary statement, and then we break it down to the saved and the unsaved. But the summary statement is, we believe in the bodily resurrection of all men, the saved to eternal life, and the unsaved to judgment and eternal punishment. Let me read that again. 
We believe in the bodily resurrection of all men, the saved to eternal life, and the unsaved to judgment and eternal punishment. And you may read that and say that leaves a lot of things out. That's why we have two paragraphs of explanation that we'll cover underneath it. But this is the general idea that when we die, there is an intermediate state and an eternal state that depending on what we have believed about Jesus Christ will depend our eternal future. Let's look up some of these verses. Turn with me to John chapter 5, verse 28. John chapter 5, verse 28. And several of the words in this statement um, are just really key words. One of those is the bodily resurrection of all men. That when we die, there's an intermediate state where our souls are in heaven with Jesus Christ, but then there's a resurrection where, there, where our bodies are reunited with our souls for all eternity. And that's a bodily real resurrection. In John 5, 28 and 29, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out, referring to resurrection and a bodily resurrection. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And right there, right in the first verse that we read on this, that should give us pause that we are dealing with sobering parts of doctrine. That we're dealing with eternity, that some will be resurrected to life some will be resurrected to eternal judgment. So we don't deal with this lightly. Romans 8.11. Let's keep reading through some of the verses. Romans 8.11. Turn over there, if you will. Romans 8, verse 11. And we'll talk about the resurrection of life and the resurrection of judgment in detail in each of the sections. Romans 8.11. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. And Paul here is speaking to believers, but he's reminding the believers that there is a real bodily resurrection. And he uses the word mortal bodies. He will give life to your mortal, mortal bodies. Reminding them that there is a resurrection especially pertinent because you had different groups. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection. The Sadducees did not. And so you had people hearing these different ideas. Paul said there is a resurrection. Matthew 25, 46. The last one we want to look at under this category. Matthew 25, 46. And go ahead and turn there as well. It's a passage that we'll study in depth next week. But the final statement that summarizes that passage is is very much the statement we based our summary statement on. Matthew 25.46 And Jesus here is talking about the sheep and the goats and the final judgment that that the sheep will come and, and He'll say, you may enter into your rest because they have followed Him and the goats will come and, and He promises them a very different future one of punishment, one of torment, because they did not follow Christ and they did not walk with Christ and live for Him. But at the end of that passage, Matthew 25, 46, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. 
These, speaking of the goats there, the unsaved, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And there's, there it is in a nutshell. And that's why that is our summary statement. The saved to eternal life and the unsaved to judgment and eternal punishment. The final state of all who have believed in Jesus Christ and repented of their sins and followed Him is eternal life in the presence of God. Eternal joy. But the fate of those that reject Christ, that do not follow Him, that do not believe in Him, is that of eternal punishment. Eternal torment. And the idea behind punishment there is not just something that, oh God, let's happen, but God in His justice and righteousness must punish sin. And next week we'll talk a little bit about the wrath of God. And that His righteousness demands His wrath when people reject Him and rebel against Him. And and a verse like this we should never read with utter glee, but with sorrow that people will be sent to eternal punishment. And that should motivate us to act on that. Next week, we'll break down each of those two parts. We'll talk about heaven. We'll talk about hell. I pray that it gives us a solid biblical understanding of this doctrine that then translates into life and our our approach to the gospel, the importance of the gospel. Let's pray. Dear Lord God, our Father, I read these verses with, with... mixed emotions. I'm joyful at the promise of eternal life, of of eternity in your presence, in communion with you. But Lord, it breaks my heart that some will go into eternity without you. Lord, I pray that that affects our approach to conversations, our approach to interactions with neighbors, that we would see as many as possible adopted into your family. That we'd see as many as, as possible in eternity with you. Lord, thank you for your word. In Jesus' name.